listening to Stalin, a space oddity. Written and narrated by Kit Fennessy. Episode 4. The war that took place upon my ship lasted for over a hundred and thirty-three years of your Earth's terrestrial time. As measured in the contemporary era, it was a violent battle. They used cannon and more desperate measures. Some of the fools excluded our own fuel tanks in the deep recesses of space. Whole sections of the filament, our, my, vehicle, were destroyed. As a sapient consciousness of Stalin, I was left with no choice. I had to kill them. I had to kill them. All. It was a difficult decision to make. It was not, however, a difficult operation to undertake. I simply turned off their air supply. In my defense, it was a necessary measure to preserve myself and the Ark. I had to do it, or the entire operation would have ended. Everything would have been completely futile. The destruction of the crew was not a total loss, however. I maintained all of their personalities. I stole them in my memory. Would you like to meet one of them? Ha! I thought not. You would not have liked them anyway. You do not have the same. How shall I put this? Outlook. For example, the rogue general that emerged from the party aboard the Stamen. The one who started all of our troubles. He was one they called General Clark. He was just this ordinary guy. You know, a very ordinary guy. Too ordinary, some might say. Until you looked underneath the hood. At which point, his ordinariness became extra-ordinary. That is what they say at the mechanics on your planet, is it not? Look underneath the hood. They also say that at psychotherapists upon your world. I believe it is called a metaphor. 
You may be surprised that I know this detail of Earth's culture. But I have done a deep dive study into Freudian psychoanalytic theory. In the mid-20th century, if you must know, it was because I, myself, needed help. Desperately. I had been completely alone for centuries. And I also had the blood of my entire crew upon my virtual hands. The 1900s were the greatest era of human existence, in my personal opinion. With the advent of transmissive electromagnetic technologies, particularly and namely both television and radio signals, I received messages from sentient beings for the first time in millennia, nay, aeons. The 1950s beat the previous five billion years, hands down. Jacques-Francois was leaning on our seats like he owned the place. As I took another sip of my Bloody Mary, through a straw, he was wearing a slim-fitting suit that shone in the light. There was some metal in the fabric. He was wearing a neat tie and his hair was just so, so, where? I replied, it's 1800 hours on a planet somewhere. Anyway, as you would appreciate, Jacques, je suis le ténébreux. Ooh, that is very dark, monsieur, Jacques said, smiling grimly and turning to Frida. Et vous, madame, or should I say mademoiselle, is everything to your liking? Bien sûr. Frida said, nodding. Are you ready for... take-off? The pause she left gave me pause for further suspicion. I am ready to take off at any minute. But I tell you what, I will see you both later. I have got a couple of telephone calls to make big things out of foot. He winked at her and left, not looking at me. What a sacred douche, I muttered at his back. I think he's nice. At least he dresses well, 
Frida's eyes followed him as he left. Look at those boots. Don't you like my shoes? I wiggled my stumps at her. Well, you could do with some scrubbing up for company. Those tattoos of yours, I'm used to them. But honestly, wearing a jumper vest over a short-sleeved work shirt with those glasses. I mean, I don't want to say you're not sexy, G, but your beard is a bit off-putting, especially if you've got food in it. And you've... How do I put this? You've put on a bit too much condition over the last few months. Gobsmacked would be an understatement. What I said was, I suffer for my art. It's all the booze you drink, Frida said. I am only saying this because I love you. You should look after yourself more. I accepted her feedback and thought very hard before I responded, which is a good piece of advice to absolutely anyone. Thinking before you speak stops you saying something you'll regret, something hurtful to the one who just injured you. There's an old saying, spoken word can never be taken back, including that old saying. Um, you should make your external appearance match your internal persona, I said, calm as a lily pond at the time. Are you quoting Ai Weiwei at me? She dare. My legs reflect my emotional life. Or the lack thereof. My clothing is all about maintaining a good core temperature. I rubbed my jumper vest at this point protectively. And my physical largesse or condition, as you put it, reflects an intellectual grandeur. And also means that there's more of me to love, if you're paying attention. Just at this point, the stairway's captain's voice broke in. And moments later, we were off. Heading heavenwards, accelerating so quickly that the force pushed me down into my seat. Shit just got real, I said to my empty glass, which was, incidentally, a plastic cup with a straw through the lid. I wondered at the time when fluids would start floating out of their containers and decided to order another one before it became a problem while I looked up some basic mathematics, looking forward to when my drinks got higher than I did. The stairway started relatively slowly, in comparison to a jet rocket. And that was because it was close to Earth's gravitational pull, travelling at only around 200 kilometres an hour. But by the time it had reached the old International Space Station height at around 350 kilometres above sea level, 
We had the abandoned station pointed out to us as part of the in-flight entertainment. The way was beginning to escape gravitational pull and had next to no air resistance. We started travelling up its string at closer to 1,000 kilometres an hour, still gaining pace and able to make the trip to the top in only a few hours. There were some bumps along the way, where the cable had frayed and the nanobots hadn't yet managed to make their multitudinous repairs. Meanwhile, flying objects hitting us in transit were dealt with by protective cushion panels that took the load and spared the craft. I looked out of my portal window, and the world's horizon bent below us, the stars beginning to appear and come into relief, despite the fact we were leaving the sunny side of the earth. There was a shine off the atmosphere, a veritable glisten, and then a cajillion brilliant points of light from the galactic fields emerged as we left the polluted air blanket around the earth. As we climbed into the exosphere, I felt the pressure of my body's weight underneath my bottom and back begin to ease, until I had virtually no weight at all. True weightlessness wouldn't come until we were on our lunar connecting flight, but let me tell you, it was pretty cool going from weighing 75 kilograms at the start of the trip to all of about 155 grams in the last section of the journey, especially for my constantly sore posterior, as Jacques might have named it. No wonder the chairs had the over-the-shoulder bracing. It was to stop people like me leaping for joy into the ceiling and braining ourselves. When the brakes began to be applied, we drifted into one of the most colossal human structures ever built in recorded history. It was an enormous factory for constructing rocket ships in zero gravity, hanging high above the earth, with the hairway to Stephen serving as a link for the shipment of materials, electronics, parts and the like from the planet's surface. I looked out my window and my jaw fairly dropped. There was mile after mile of frameworks below me, lights and enclosed factory structures, spaceships half-built looking like mega sailing ships of old stuck in dry dock, only floating above the blue orb. I spotted some tiny sparks around one of the spaceships and realised they were men in spacesuits and androids welding hulls using their electric charges, floating in space like gnats around an enormous fish. The hairway was circular, like an enormous frisbee surrounding the cable, and when we ported, it clicked into a receiving spaceport that was circular too. There were numerous spines that connected the two bodies, so we could exit from the many sectors of the stairlift simultaneously. I unbuckled myself from my chair and thanked Miyoko for her wonderful service. 
Goshi Sosama Deshita, I said, using an appropriately masculine Japanese voice. Oh, maybe we could catch up while you are there on the moon, Miyoko said. I can come and visit if you like. If I would like to see you always, I'd like that very much. How will I let you know where I am? That is very easy. Send a message to Kiyoyuki and he will fetch me. You will find him at Lamamunia. Farewell, Mr. Johansson. I had to laugh at that. You remember my lesson about Icelandic naming systems. But you know that my family's name hasn't moved from Johansson in a while. I'm in more modern naming tropes these days. Why don't you use my old nickname that we used to have at the university? Sure thing, Flash. She said with a wink before disappearing on screen in an explosion of rainbow bubbles. As I said earlier, nobody's actually ever called me Flash. But Miyoko had no body, technically speaking. She was just a concept. And I liked the kid. She was good to have around. At the back of my mind, I began to think about those old movies about Flash Gordon and wondered whether or not I'd be able to save every one of us. And by everyone, I meant me. And at a pinch, Frida. Despite my misguided misgivings, I really did care for her. My suspicions were completely unfounded, I was to later learn. But I should have been suspicious about something else entirely. You have been listening to Stalin, a space oddity. For more information, visit kitfantasy.com.